1: There is, for the time being at least, a statue outside the Houses of Parliament. The man is bareheaded, his hat held under one arm. He holds a Bible in one of his hands and a sword in another. This apparently deferential and humble pose actually also depicts the paradox of the man's character, his high religious principles and his low, ruthless actions. The man is Oliver Cromwell. And joining me today to discuss the making of Cromwell is Professor Ronald Hutton. Professor Hutton has written the first of three volumes of biography of Oliver Cromwell. This first one focuses on the first 48 years of his life, the period in which he established himself as a national figure. It takes us from his birth through to 1646, but finishes before Charles I's execution, the Interregnum and the Irish atrocities. It's a radical reassessment. It's a refreshing, sceptical, and really quite brilliant depiction of old Ironside, warts and all. Ronald Hutton is Professor of History at Bristol University. He's one of our greatest living historians. A leading authority on the British Isles in the 16th and 17th centuries, on ancient and medieval paganism and magic, and on the global context of witchcraft beliefs, he's the author of 17 books. Among them, my favourites, predictably for listeners of this podcast, are his book The Witch, A History of Fear from Ancient Times to the Present, and The Rise and Fall of Merry England, The Ritual Year 1400 to 1700. But as well as thinking about culture and society, he's also thought much about 17th century military and political history. He writes beautifully, and he is the perfect person to have produced this pioneering account of the only English commoner to rural England and Wales, arguably, as Hutton says, the greatest commoner of all time. Professor Hutton, it is always a joy to speak to you. I've so enjoyed our chats in the past, and I'm very much looking forward to this one. And I'd like to talk, first of all, about the stuff of the historian, about evidence, because you use it so systematically in this book. And despite being one of the most published about early modern figures, Oliver Cromwell remains enigmatic. And this is partly a question of the nature of evidence, although there's masses of it. I mean, he's not one of the characters from history for whom we have to search for their voice. But could you tell us about the sources you've used for this wonderful book and how you avoided rehearsing either hagiography or hate speech?
2: It remains, I think, for my readers to decide how far I've steered between either of those two final possibilities. The question of evidence, though, is a crucial one. Simply because we have apparently so much of it for Oliver Cromwell. We have more of his words than we have for any English head of state other than himself before Queen Victoria. So, any biographer of Cromwell, especially one with a strict word limit from publishers, trying to do it all in one book, finds it very difficult not to use Cromwell's own self image as the scaffolding in which you hang the story. But just reading through all his writings and speeches takes a lot of time. So I decided the only way to judge their worth as evidence was to read everything else that other people had experienced or noticed in the events and the issues which he describes. That's an awful lot of extra work. So that's why I'm doing it really slowly. I thought I'd make a study of Cromwell until he established himself as a military and political national figure by the end of the Civil War and put him in the context of what everybody else thought about the events and the arguments of the time and then see how they matched up. I'm now committed to trying to do the same exercise for the rest of Cromwell's life, in installments. But it's going to be a long slog.
1: Yes, I mean, I am immediately feeling daunted at the size of the task that you have already accomplished. I mean, to choose to read all his work, but then put it aside where necessary (laughs) to put it in context. It's extraordinarily dedicated of you and sounds like it certainly would have taken a huge number of years.
2: (laughs) It took about half a decade, flat out, which is a fair chunk of a person's life. I live with Cromwell now. He moved in about five years ago, after we'd been on kind of social relations before, meeting up and chatting every so often. And now every time I walk to work in the morning, it's hard not to have Oliver walking beside me and discussing the sights in the street with me. I don't claim to have actual insight into his mind, but he is a constant interruption in my life.
1: You remind me, actually, of Hilary Mantel talking about the other Cromwell. And for those who get the two Cromwells, Thomas and Oliver, confused, I suppose they could be forgiven insofar as they were related, weren't they?
2: Yes, in an important sense. One of them, my guy, is a descendant from the other Hilary Mantel's, Dermot McCulloch's Cromwell. It was Thomas Cromwell, the Tudor one, who established the name and the family fortune. My Cromwell comes down from his nephew, who married the Tudor Cromwell's sister, and assumed the family name because it had just been made great. Of course, because it was made great by Henry VIII, it was promptly annihilated politically and personally when the Thomas Cromwell of the Tudors got thrown from power and put to death but his nephew's family survived as an important newly established branch of Midland gentry and came down to produce mine. Incidentally the family name of my Cromwells really Williams Cromwell being an assumed name, and on legal documents, even my Oliver Cromwell is referred to as Oliver Cromwell, alias Williams.
1: Now, Oliver Cromwell, alias Williams, rose from obscurity, and you call this phase, a rather lovely turn of phrase, the prehistoric Cromwell. Before we get into what we know, which I do want to ask you, but can you give us a sense as you do so beautifully in the book of the setting? and how this had a bearing on his later experience.
2: Mike Cromwell is a townie. He is somebody who has ample opportunity in later years to settle in or retire to the country, and set himself up in a big mansion with a deer park and provincial friends, and never does so. He grows up at Huntingdon, which is a declining medieval capital with lots of spare churches. Now on rather hard times, but still very self-important and very conscious of its place as a seat of MPs and a capital for trade. And he's born with a silver spoon in his mouth planted there by a rich uncle who runs the county and dominates the town from this fabulous rose red and grey mansion with lots of chimneys still on the edge of Huntingdon today. And he's okay there punching above his own weight, MP, JP, town councillor, until uncle goes bust. Oliver is then kicked out. And ruined, he becomes a working tenant farmer. He's no longer a gent, and he settled in a one church town downstream, literally from Huntingdon. And his rise begins from there.
1: So his rise begins there. What do we really know otherwise about the sort of first two thirds of his life?
2: Very little. It's just rather enigmatic legal documents. We know his birth, his marriage, who his parents were where he went to university, which is Cambridge, and for how long, not very long. And we know that he had a massive emotional experience in his thirties, when he gets born again as a passionately sincere, extreme evangelical Christian, aiming at the reform of the Church of England to make it more firmly based on preaching and the Bible. We call these people Puritans. And this is the defining experience of his maturing life.
1: And what do we know about that conversion? It's uh, moving from the kind of evangelical Anglican faith into what you have called a Puritan jihadi at points in the book. Do we know why it happened or how?
2: No, this is stuff for novelists. We don't really know where it happens. most probably in that little town of St Ives to which he's exiled from his home in Huntingdon when his career there goes bust. So you have this nice plausible scenario of a ruined man, emotionally shattered, who's put back together again by renewed faith in Jesus Christ. It's a classic conversion scenario. But we aren't really sure of the linkage between his personal fortunes and his religious change. We don't know who converted him. There are various Puritan preachers in the neighbourhood. Any or all of them could have been responsible. We know he gets networked after that into the local extended family of Puritans, ministers and laity. And they actually do remake his career because when the reigning government of King Charles I becomes extremely unpopular at the end of the 1630s, Oliver is put up by the local Puritans for a parliamentary seat at Cambridge on an anti-government platform. And he is elected. He's elected again to another parliament later that year. And he stays in that parliament really until he chucks it out. 13 years later, by which time he's virtually head of state.
1: And in these years, in the early 1630s, I was really struck by how you had made sense of the spaces where there are silences in the archives. For example, the five years which pass where Oliver and his wife Elizabeth who have gone for 12 years, you say, basically having a child almost annually, then don't have one for five years. Just as a sort of example, could you explain how you thought about this or how you deal with these kind of questions of absence in the archives?
2: That particular question is easy, because it's a phenomenon that screams for an answer. As you've just said, here's this really happily married couple who are happy for life. That's Cromwell and his wife, Elizabeth. And it is a child a year right through until his career goes bust at Huntingdon and he moves at St. Ives and suddenly there are no children until his fortunes are repaired. He gets a legacy from an uncle and that puts him back into the category of gentry. And he is then able to move again to the respectable cathedral city of Ely and resume the role of not exactly a local bigwig, but at least somebody in the top 5% of society. And then the children start again. So the gap really is quite dramatic and corresponds to a nadir of his fortunes. And the only reason for it is that the Cromwells aren't having sex. And that could be because he's suffering from depression. Or it could be that the family fortunes are so low, we don't have accounts, we can't tell. They just can't afford any more children. Or it could be that his loss of status at Huntingdon coincides with the death of the only one of his children to expire as a baby, cot death. And that may have wrecked the emotions of Elizabeth and Oliver for uh, half a decade. But however you read it, it's a sign of trauma.
1: Yes, and that's so beautifully put in terms of thinking about the possibilities available to the historians as they seek to interpret something like this. And so it's sort of out of this period of time, as you said, who he converts. And I suppose the other thing we ought to focus on for this period in terms of thinking about his conversion is that previous biographers, of which there are a number, have seen this conversion as fundamental to his trajectory. Thereafter that he became so devout and religiously driven that all his subsequent actions, good and bad, can kind of be dated back to this point, I suppose. How much do you think this was so?
2: I think certainly that his religion becomes the informing emotional theme of his life. And he's utterly sincere about it. Nobody since about 1840 has thought that Cromwell was a hypocrite about religion. But increasingly there is a built-in problem for him, which is that he has to stay religious because he has this meteoric rise to military and political power and stardom. And since he's a minor provincial gent in an age which at least officially believes passionately in an all-powerful single God, The only reason why Cromwell has been allowed to rise like this is because God wants it. And therefore, God must have a special purpose for this nobody to be there at the centre of power. So Cromwell has to be a lot more conscious of God than most people. He's also a very radical Puritan. He really is filled with the passionate hatred from the 1630s of powerful churchmen of any kind. He feels for the ordinary devout Christian who wants to make up his, in some cases, her own mind about what they believe and where they want to worship. And this does two things for him. The first is that it puts him out on a limb, religiously and politically, in a small minority who believe like this. But it also has a bonus in that there just aren't many gentry, let alone aristocracy, let alone people in power who have these radical views. And so rising from well attracts a clientele of utterly devoted, often very talented people who are religious radicals and see him very often as their only hope. And these people fill up the ranks of his regiment. They become his allies in the army and politics and they help carry him to power.
1: One final thought, then, before we move from sort of domestic to the national stage, is I suppose that we might imagine that his faith was crucial in helping him deal with the death of his eldest son.
2: Yes, although he didn't deal with it terribly well. He admitted later that it just threw him. He's a very emotional man, he's a family man. He really loves his wife, he really loves his children, he is equally fond of his daughters with his sons. He spends as much time on them and with them and cares about them as much. So he's going to take it hard when God has appeared to be helping him and then God suddenly sends smallpox to knock off his eldest son. And when he gets over that, his second son is elevated to the same position and actually fights alongside his father in the civil war. And then, blow me down, he dies of smallpox too. You know, that is the bacillus, which has it in for the Cromwell family. But smallpox is really the only disease at the time that hits royalty, aristocracy, gentry really hard. Notable members of the Stuart royal family die of smallpox, for example, including a queen. So this is an occupational hazard of being around in 17th century England. So Cromwell naturally does the why me thing. And I think the way he rationalizes it is that God tends to bump off his heir just before God elevates Oliver in another great tsunami like Rush up the social and military scale. So it's a way of laying him low as he'd been laid low in Huntington before being raised up to even greater things. And I think that's how he gets rounded. it.
1: One of the great turning points of his career occurred in November 1640. What happened then, and what did it mean in a national context?
2: In a national context, it means very little what happens to Oliver in November 1640. To Oliver, it's massive. He's elected to his third parliament. Not many people have noticed him in the first two. This time he goes in, guns blazing politically. And within a couple of days, he's got the attention of the House of Commons by delivering a passionate speech on behalf of a prisoner of conscience, a young and very brave and rather irritating man called John Lilburn, who has been locked up by the royal government for criticising its church. And Oliver effectively gets this guy released and provides an alliance between the two of them that lasts for about seven years. And he's got the attention of the House. There's this wonderful pen portrait of him making a key speech given by a rather snooty cavalier who knows what it is to be a gentleman. And it's the perfect portrait of the rough Puritan statesman in the making, clothes made by a bad country tailor, a tin pot sword strapped to his leg and his collar with some spots of blood on it from shaving. So he clearly hasn't got a manservant who's capable of tipping him off that he should maybe change his linen or maybe doesn't even have a change of linen. So this is a bumpkin. But as the commentator said, he's an eloquent bumpkin. And what he had to say in his harsh, untunable voice without any fancy quotations or tags or punchlines was so effective that he persuaded the writer as well. So this is a wonderful, cinematic, blazing portrait of Oliver in action.
1: How much of an impact, and how quickly, did he have on the Long Parliament before civil war itself starts?
2: He has quite an impact. He is not a leader by any means. He is in the second rank of the politicians who oppose Charles I in the first two years of the Long Parliament and who were then going to lead the nation into the civil war against Charles I. But There are a couple of things that make him effective. The first is he's totally dependable to this group. He always votes on their side because they embody the kind of things in which he believes. He isn't interested very much in political issues. He's hugely interested in reform of the church. He's a Puritan. That's where he comes from, and that's where he's going. But he's also a really industrious committee man, and it looks as if he reads the documents carefully. He turns up. And committees are not most people's favorite means of social interaction, but Oliver sits on dozens of them. And he's clearly very effective there because he keeps on being appointed. And then he gets entrusted with honorable donkey work, like taking messages between the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So he's good on the admin side and he's reliable and hardworking. So as well as this kind of charismatic, Puritan orator and later on dashing cavalryman, you have this image of Cromwell as somebody who knows what makes the donkey work matter and can get on with it. What caused the anarchy?
0: How
1: did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now?
2: Who won the Hundred Years' War?
1: Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk?
2: How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park?
1: And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman.
2: And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds.
1: We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, And reveal how the so called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today.
2: Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
2: wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Charles I declared war on Parliament in August 1642 and Cromwell was given a position in the military initially as a captain in the Earl of Essex's Horse Regiment, One of the aspects of Cromwell for which he's infamous is his later atrocities against the Irish rebels. But do you think that his taste for savagery actually can be seen really to have started in these years?
2: I think what you're saying is that he's got a reputation for being a butcher in Ireland later. And I've indicated that he's pretty bloodthirsty even in England. And he is. He's a natural born killer. Towards the end of the Civil War, he toes the line when it comes to giving easy terms to surrendering Royalists, because that really is the quickest way of getting the war to end. But earlier, he takes a pleasure in bloodletting, which is relatively unusual. I mean, this after all is a Civil War, and you have generals on both sides who have friends on the opposite sides and who speak with wonderful one-liners like this war without an enemy. Well, Cromwell's absolutely certain that it's a war with an enemy, and the enemy is Satan, and his military and political enemies are the devil's followers. It's as simple as that. That's why I call him a Puritan jihadi, without any sense of shame or of misappropriation of language. In his very first effective leadership of cavalry, a skirmish in Lincolnshire. He routes and chases some royalist horsemen and exults afterwards in a letter about how they did execution on them for miles, in other words, killing as many as they could. Even more remarkable is the next little local action, also in Lincolnshire, in which he routes another group of local cavalier horsemen. And the royalist commander, who's an aristocrat, is knocked from his horse onto the ground. Now, this is a really valuable captive. He's a noble. He can be exchanged for a prisoner taken from your side. And there's real credit in bringing him back like a prize from a hunt. They don't even think about it. Cromwell, second in command, runs the stricken man through in Cromwell's exulting language under the short ribs, which is a steal from the Old Testament. Stabbing people under the fifth rib is what you do to Midianites, Amalekites, Ammonites, and all the other ites who infest the Old Testament as enemies of the people of God. And it goes on like that.
1: That gives us a really vivid sense of his zeal and i suppose it also might be useful to think about the kind of nature of what cromwell and his men looked like in terms of their weaponry the equipment give us an idea of what warfare looked like at this point
2: It's a strange mixture of gunpowder and cold steel. It mixes together the Middle Ages with the modern period, and that's why it's so classically early modern. We know what everybody looks like on the field in some detail because we have all the payments for every item of their equipment. So Oliver's a cavalry leader, and he and his men are going to be equipped with body armour, which is a breastplate and a backplate connected by a strap. And a helmet, probably with, in most cases, with this kind of lobster claw of plate down the back of the neck to protect it. They're going to have a couple of pistols each, which are ready loaded and hung from the horse's neck to be fired at close range. And a sword, which is initially in its sheath by your side. But you draw it before going into the charge, and it hangs by a rope from your wrist. So when you fired your pistols into the faces of the enemy at point-blank range, you then hurl them into the faces of the enemy whom you haven't just shot, and then you take your sword in your hand and start laying about you. And probably you're doing this standing still because very seldom does a cavalry charge break a well-trained and equipped enemy at first impact. What it tends to do is hit a solid bunch of horsemen who are together with their thighs pressed into each other and receive the charge, there's a crash and they sway. And then the whole thing comes to a stand and everybody is shooting and hacking at each other, literally a foot's distance from each other. So the swearing and the screaming and the, the screaming of the wounded horses and the pitching and the tossing is just a colossal wall of sound. And after a while of shoving back and forth, one line of horsemen will break And once they're broken, that's it. You can't actually turn a bolting horse. So then God really is on your side because you're chasing the backs of fleeing enemies and laying into them with your sword.
1: The picture you paint is of one that demands extraordinary courage, as well as brilliance in terms of tactics.
2: It really does. It's a horrible way to fight. It's an even worse way to die. And if you come in contact with infantry as a cavalryman, then you'll be facing pikemen. These are people with 16-foot long spears with heavy metal heads, which are intended to PSU. And you'll be the targets of musketeers. These are muskets which have got by now to the standard of efficiency, where a well-trained user can fire a musket ball every 45 seconds reloading and firing again and by musket ball i mean something that's solid lead it's a sphere about half an inch across but lead's quite soft so when this thing smacks into your body it will splay out so a piece of lead half an inch across going into you is going to create an exit wound up to six inches across taking with it with this lead your blood vessels nerves bits of bone and of course, singed bits of your clothing. So the potential for sepsis and a lingering death through gangrene, uh, or just septicemia in the blood, is pretty well overpowering.
1: And yet, despite this extraordinary level of risk, crucial to Cromwell's rise is that he never lost a single battle, that he was a military mastermind. So how was he so successful?
2: Well, partly because he is a very good tactician and later on a very good strategician as well. He's a born soldier. Also, he's extraordinarily lucky. He is always or virtually always in a well-trained, very well-equipped and well-paid force, which outnumbers its enemy. And this is the crucial thing. If, as I've said, the classic cavalry encounter is two lines of men with bodies of horsemen at their back, shoving at each other, if you have equally good discipline, training and equipment, the side that's most likely to win is the bigger body of horsemen. And Cromwell's always got the bigger body of horsemen.
1: So maybe let's have a look at an important case study. He's very much in command. Marston Moore. And this wonderful line that Cromwell said of the royalist, God made them as stubble to our swords. Can you describe this battle for us and Cromwell's role in it?
2: Yeah, the fact that he would refer to other human beings as stubble to our swords so exultantly indicates again his bloodthirstiness. The opposing army was slaughtered. Mastermore is the biggest battle of the entire war. And it's an enormous royalist mistake. Yeah, but the Royalists have an extremely good pair of armies that have just joined up, but they're outnumbered by the three great armies of which Oliver is part of one. He's commanding the cavalry of the Army of East Anglia, and when the two armies square up to each other, because the Royalists were expecting the enemy to be retreating, they ran up hard against the rearguard of Cromwell's army and then screeched to a halt, suddenly realising they were facing a determined enemy. And for the rest of the day, the two armies just stare at each other. They're far too close to each other. There's only a ditch between them. The larger army, which has Cromwell commanding the cavalry on the left wing, is up on quite a steep slope. And as the army sit and stare at each other, the pioneers, these are the poor devils with the spades and shovels, In Cromwell's army, filling in the holes in the ground and clearing away the gorse bushes and the bumps on the slope in front. And so when Cromwell's generals decide to attack and Cromwell gets the order, he leads four, 5,000 cavalry at a breakneck speed, straight downhill over obstacles that have now been cleared to smack into two to 3,000 enemy who are standing to receive them and also have just scrambled onto their horses because the royalists had thought by that end of the day, nobody would attack. So they're taken by surprise. So everything is in his favour, the slope, the state of the ground, the condition of the enemy and numbers. And after surprisingly quite a hard fight, given all these advantages, the cavaliers break and Cromwell chases the men off the field. But then he and the infantry to his right, who are also from his army, stop, realise the fight's going badly and the rest of the battle, and wheel round the back of the Royalist army to smash into its other wing from the rear. And this works like a dream. Both sides of the Royalist army are now cleared which means that the infantry in the centre are surrounded and can be destroyed in detail. And it takes hours to kill them. Four to six thousand people are killed or mortally wounded in the course of the next few hours. It's a bloodbath.
1: That is just extraordinary and so vividly painted. I mean, they're extraordinary numbers. If you think about even the size of towns at the time, that is a very good sized town that's been wiped out in the course of an afternoon.
2: This is an awful war. The English Civil War is the bloodiest war in the entire history of England. It kills a greater percentage of the population than World War I and World War II together did of the population of 20th century England.
1: And we so easily forget that. That's absolutely true. And then of course, the other great battle that people may well have heard of is Naseby. Did the victory here boil down to numerical advantage again?
2: Yeah, it did, but also to ground and to moment. In this case, it was the royalists who attacked Cromwell's people, but they attacked with probably about half his numbers. And they were forced to attack uphill, a hill that strewn with gorse bushes. And so Cromwell probably couldn't believe his luck as he and his horsemen sat on this ridge and watched a numerically inferior disconnected enemy struggling up a rough slope in front of them. And all Oliver had to do was just hit them, smash when they were in the right position with his front line, and then detach his second line to hit them in the flank. And the result was a foregone conclusion. And with an entire wing of the enemy army gone, you can roll up the army from that side.
1: So so much about success is choosing the right location, being able to understand the geography, the topography and position your army in the right place.
2: Yes, but this is what warfare has been like probably since the Neolithic. It's all about the ground. I spend a lot of time on the ground in the book because of this truth. Also, I rather like the ground. In many ways, my book is a love letter to England.
1: It is. I love some of your depictions of the rivers. Or Early on, you give a very vivid sense of the place of quietness and darkness in most people's experience of living, which, of course, contrasts so much with our modern experience. It's
2: kind of you to say so, but I thought really hard about those passages because they're scene setting in the earlier part of the book. And I thought, I know that some colleagues are going to regard this kind of thing as time-wasting. When is he going to get down to the history we care about, all this scene setting? Mm -hmm. And I had my doubts about readers, but on the whole, people have felt those parts of the book to be some of the most memorable and valuable. I'm really grateful for that.
1: Because history is actually about people's everyday experience, as you've written about so much elsewhere, as well as about these extraordinarily important political and religious and military movements. And I suppose, without wishing to blow your trumpet too much, but I I think the fact is that it is because you are a historian of all these things that you can do something new with something that is pretty well trodden ground.
2: That's kind of, yeah. And again, although I wouldn't actually or necessarily recommend this, I've also had decades of experience in military reenactment of the war. I'm vice president for life of the Sealed Knot, which is the biggest and oldest historical reenactment society in Europe. And it's very dear to my heart, It um, gave me a wonderful opportunity to see exactly what the terrain felt like with gradient, the vegetation and so on. Because although land use and farming has changed a lot in three and a half centuries, the gradient of the vegetation itself hasn't really. And also, forgive me, but I could never resist this. Some of the insights you get into the physical consequences of using this weaponry, like the appalling effects on the eardrum of gunpowder weapons at close range, if you're a musketeer or an artilleryman, you can't get away from this. Even now, firing a gun that's in most cases about half the size of the field artillery that would be used then, you know that you need to get at least five feet away from thing for, Well, while you're firing it, you fire it with a pole and keep your mouth open. If you close your mouth and cover your ears, your drums might blow out because of the impact. And also, gunpowder is a laxative. And it blows in the smoke, in clouds, when you fired muskets or artillery, and just by breathing with your mouth open because of the heat of fighting and crossing the terrain, you get it all over your tongue. You then swallow it, and the results on the digestive system are unpleasant. There's a proverb among late medieval reenactors: never follow a gunner into a portaloon.
1: But these are incredible insights, because they are the only sort of insights you can only get from that kind of lived experience of history.
2: I'm very conscious that the portrait I paint of Cromwell is a more accurate one than those before, because I've contextualised it a bit more. But ultimately, we can never get inside the guy's head, especially as I believe that he's a more slippery customer. Than many in history. And this is exactly what most people said about him at the time. That's the Cromwell that's missing from his own self-representation, is the devious, the ruthless, the scheming Cromwell, the Cromwell who's a fixer, as well as a devout Christian. If you have my view of Cromwell, then what you see is Cromwell facing a political situation, sizing it up as he does a piece of ground before a battle working out what has to be done, because it's the only way out of a particular situation that will achieve his ends, and then thumbing through the Bible and finding a text in scripture which explains and justifies it, and thereby shows God's approval. But somebody else, possibly just as reasonably, would say that this is a man who looks up the Bible to be guided, finds the text, and then follows that. And I can't really disprove that. I can just suggest that the number of times in which Cromwell uses and dumps people who've ceased to be convenient to him and chooses a solution to things that really is the art of the possible, really is the only way out now for somebody who is determined pragmatically to follow events, does suggest there's more going on here than just being guided by God
1: do you think that in the end, the problem actually lies with us? This man appears to us to be paradoxical, to be pious and devious at the same time seems difficult for us to understand. But perhaps that comes down to our limited understanding of, say, the nature of faith in the 17th century, rather than it actually being that difficult a paradox.
2: I think it's just a perennial difficulty of understanding other human beings. I've written many different types of history for many different periods. I occasionally make a joke, which one day will haunt me, that I specialise in the period from the old stone age to the present. And so I've written history that's living memory stuff. And like anybody who's tried this and started off like I did, naive, I was just shocked and flummoxed by the completely different absolutely certain recollections that different eyewitnesses had of the same event. And also, again and again, when I've been dealing with people's past, when the people are now elderly, referring to things they did in their youth, they will genuinely have forgotten why they did things. Or at the time, they might not even have realised. And I found myself in the disconcerting situation of saying, well, reading the records, this is what you seem to have done, and getting the answer, oh, is that why I did it? oh, thank you for telling me, and said, not ironically, but with perfect sincerity. So humans are very, very complex. And in the last analysis, we simply tell the best story we can in terms of the records.
1: One of the things you've brought out is that the records that we have on Cromwell particularly highlight his relentless self-promotion. And this aspect of his character has perhaps been something that has, well, I don't know if overlooked is quite the right word, but certainly people have accepted his word at face value a little bit too much.
2: That's certainly correct, in my opinion. He is a superb self-promoter. His representation of himself in his letters and speeches is undoubtedly that of an unusually honest, devout, patriotic, loyal, well-meaning person. And pretty well the opposite impression of him in every sense, except the devout and the patriotic, is gained by those around him. They see an extremely and unusually devious, dangerous, unreadable man who somehow pinball-like always seems to come through every tangled political situation with his fortune and career augmented while claiming God's doing all of it. I think he's quite sincere in claiming God's doing all of it, which is another way of saying he can't believe his luck.
1: He does seem to have an extraordinary amount of luck that he took to active military command in middle age, that he survived all manner of near run-ins with death. It's it's remarkable.
2: Yeah, he's got iron constitution. He's a big guy. He's solidly built. So it's not just that he goes through a whole series of military actions with barely a scratch on him. He gets a burn across the neck, probably from a pistol going off too close. But that's it. But he never gets ill properly throughout the entire Great Civil War. And this is somebody who's up all night on Bodmin Moor in several degrees of frost, and then the following day still doesn't sleep but rides 20 miles to Wavebridge, leaving cavalry consignment to block a retreat by a fleeing enemy. At that age even with modern medicine I think I'd break myself but there's never a hint of it. So he has helped a lot. I mean his luck does run out. Later in his career he does fall ill an increasing number of times. You can see he's starting to crumble But through the really important formative stage of his career, he is astonishingly lucky. And of course, simply to be in charge, as we've discussed, of larger numbers of troops at all the decisive engagements is luck as well. And the fact that he tends either to be teamed with people who don't really like him but are grossly incompetent or with people who are really competent and really do like him is another amazing stroke of luck. So he never quite gets overshadowed.
1: Much of the time when we've been having this conversation, you've spoken of him in the present tense, and you say that he dogs your days and walks alongside you. Do you like him?
2: I don't trust him. I enjoy his company. He is fascinating. And I admire his talents considerably. But there's no point in having Cromwell to dinner other than to be entertained with his heavily skewed version of events, which I kind of know already from his own writings and speeches. You certainly wouldn't get the truth out of me, even his cups. And he did have a really puerile taste in party games. So, yeah, I think even I would pass on having Oliver as a social guest. As a business partner, he's really very interesting.
1: And you're walking on with him into volume two and three, and we will get to Charles I's execution and the interregnum and Irish savageries. Is the task a daunting one?
2: No, it's about the same scale as book one. If I finish in book three, then I might get daunted because it might have to be an even bigger book than the last two. It'll cover the last seven years of his life. And trying to tell a coherent story with an even greater bulk of evidence is going to be daunting, but I'll meet it when it comes. At present, I'm writing up 1647. I've done the work up to 1651, and I'm still loving every minute. For a lot of people, and they include many of my colleagues who produce superlatively good work, the actual act of writing is excruciating. It's something they have to do, and they're satisfied with the result, but they're so relieved when it's over. Whereas for me, it's like a hobby. It's my basket weaving. It's my yoga. It's my ballroom dancing. Once I'm there with the pile of notes beside me and the word processor in front of me, I relax completely and sail off into another world and have the time of my life.
1: I feel the same. That's the fun bit. Well, I hope you'll come back and talk to me about the Cromwell you're discovering in those later years, at a later stage. That would be rather wonderful.
2: I think it would be wonderful, but working with you always is wonderful because you're a very good historian who is unfailingly courteous and generous to colleagues. And I felt that the very first time we worked together. Most presenters and interviewers are extremely good people. That's how they get their jobs, but you do stand out in that.
1: Gosh, I am blushing. Thank you so much for your kind words. And thank you very much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show.